This is Tall Boy Radio. Each week, your hosts, Beans, Gaz, and Andy, grab a beer and discuss whatever it is that's on our minds. We try to keep things uncomplicated. The premise for this podcast is as simple as we are. Not only can you listen to us at tallboyradio.com and on every podcast platform, you can also watch the video version on YouTube. Just search for Tall Boy Radio or click on the link on our website. If you have a story and want to feature on the show or just want to get in touch, drop us an email at mail at tallboyradio.com or leave us a comment on social media at Tallboy Radio on Twitter and Facebook and at Tallboy Radio Podcast on Instagram. Or you can leave us a message on the Anchor app, which we can play on the show. Right, the show is about to begin, so go grab yourself a cold one, kick back and enjoy. Welcome back to episode 147 of Tall Boy Radio. Now we can promise you one thing. But the guest we have for you tonight will be every bit as good as the guy we had on last week. And that is an absolute promise. So before we introduce him, let's introduce the other host that's with us, Gazza. Evening, guys. Looking forward to this. Last week was an absolute hoot. So as Adam has just alluded to, if this week's guest lives up to last week's guest, then we're in for an absolute treat. Just for you guys out there tonight. I'm drinking a beer called Dago Ultra Phase, which is rapidly becoming one of my favourites. It's an 8.5% dipper, and I'm drinking it out of a St. Bernardus glass. You can't quite see that, but yeah. And when that goes, just to wet the whistle a little bit later, I have a left. So that, that's me sorted for the next sort of hour. I'm going to sit back, buckle up, and, and see where we go. Indeed, indeed. Right, let me tell you a little bit about the beer that I'm drinking tonight, guys. Let's see if this one appeals to you. It is a Vault City Red Jammy Peanut Butter Marshmallow Honeycomb Imperial Sour. So it is a 10% sour beer. And let me just show you the colour of this one, Gaza. It looks... Well, it doesn't look so good, if I'm really honest, but it tastes I was going to say, that, that, that doesn't look that appetising, I'll be honest with you. It looks like one of those healthy yogurts, but I'm pretty sure it ain't good for you. <laughs> so, we hope you enjoyed last week. We certainly enjoyed last week. We had the author of NYPD Through the Looking Glass on, and a number of other books, including the NYPD's Flying oh. Circus. So, yeah, he was good enough to join us last week. Even even better, he's joining us again this week. So the least I could do was stick my hand in my pocket and pick up another one of his books, which will make excellent stocking fillers. As we said, do you want to say hello, Vic? Guys, thank you so so much for having me on your show. I had a really, I do like between five and ten interviews a week, and it was a blast. So I'm glad that, I'm glad to be back. Oh no, we, we're we're glad to have you back. And the feedback that we've had of people, I've had a number of emails and a number of messages of people I know as well, telling me how much they enjoyed that episode, how much they yeah. laughed. And, and basically, the, the the general feedback was that is one guy we would like to go for a beer with and hear his story. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because not necessarily going for a beer, but my my daughter, who I, I sort of mentioned towards the back end, and um, listened to it back. I said that that Vic, you were on, and she was like, "Oh my god!" And then and then she listened to it back on um, YouTube on the Wednesday, and she quoted. She said. Oh my God, he's my new favourite guy, and I was like, <laughs> "Sounds cool." So yeah, so she, she was an absolute massive fan, and and loved your stories and stuff. So yeah, all good. Yeah. So yeah, so so last time we had cat murder, blowjobs, 
public piss syndrome amongst many other things. So we're looking forward to hear what we have tonight. Public <laughs> pissing, love it. <laughs> so my my first question for you then is, and and this is an interesting thing about when people write books, they often get made into films and television series. You know, so is, would you would you would you really like to see that done with your books? That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Oh yeah! Are you kidding me? I'm hoping that somebody in Hollywood picks up my book and goes, "Who the fuck?" Yeah, let's, let's reach out <laughs> to this guy. Yeah, you know, and they'll option my book. You know what I mean? Oh, I would love every minute of that. You know, it's um, I write in the end of one of my books. As much as I enjoy writing, it's like a double-edged sword putting yourself out there because my books sell but they sell more when I do these promotional, you know, I go on shows and promotions and like one of my biggest fears is like Oprah finds me interesting. You know what I mean? Like I'm not looking to be the next Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz or Dr. Vic, but you know, I'll take the money. You know what I mean? That comes along with it. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if it did get made then into a television series or a film, first of all, who would play you? And second of all, what would be the opening scene? I'm sure you'll have a story for that. I would like to have the actor Bobby Cannavale play me. He, he was in the uh, the movie uh, The Irishman. He, he's a really good Italian-Cuban guy, very sarcastic. He's got that New York humor down pat, so I'd like him. I'd like Gary Oldman to play my lieutenant, if Gary's listening. Cheers. <laughs> The opening scene, I think the opening scene is that story I told you guys last week about me sitting on the toilet and <laughs> going into the next stall. Try, I mean, how do you top that? I mean, it's just, you know, it's exciting. It's going to grab your attention. It's funny. You know, you play some nice music in the background, something wild. And I, 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 think, I think all my books, the story's in there. I'm always worried that someone's going to poach them and I'm yeah. going to see it in a movie and like, you know what I mean? Like someone ripped me off. Yeah, yeah. That's I guess that's the danger. Although they do say that imitation is one of the greatest forms of flattery. So you know you'd take that, but the money would be nicer. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah. So tell us tell us a little bit about then the premise for the seventh book that you're writing at the moment. Can you give us any stories out of that one? Uh, well, the seventh book I'm writing right now, I'm probably about 180 pages in. I usually hit the cutoff point at about between 220 and 240, depending on how I'm rolling. S same as, as my other books. They're just short stories about my NYPD career. There's a lot of funny things in there. Uh, oh, God, you, you threw me a curve with that question because that was the last thing on my mind when I'm writing now. Like, I got all these notes for all these stories. And you fucking threw me a curve. I'm like sitting there waiting for a fastball. You threw me a curve. It's like I'm playing baseball and you guys are playing cricket. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I prefer baseball to cricket just for the record. Gaz, on the other hand, did play a little bit of cricket. but we I don't did want play it. a little bit of cricket, yeah. And I haven't ever played – well, I have played baseball just like – feelingly at school but no, right. never seriously so I have so been to I, baseball right, so game I, though when we went to um, we, we, we went to watch the Yankees play so that, that was all good when, when we were over in New York so um, Mr. Judge w w was playing he, he was, was it Aaron Judge he, he, he's one of the guys over there so he, we saw him he was, a, he was a big guy the guy that everybody loved sort of thing so no it's cool it was a good game enjoyed it <laughs> you went to Yankee Stadium? yeah so, okay, so my office, when I was in the auto crime division, was literally seven, eight blocks from Yankee Stadium. Oh. Yeah, okay. and you could tell it's a really nice neighborhood there, right? So, 
So like between my NYPD career working down the block from there and my friend's mo mother, who is in her 80s and still works for the New York Yankees, like since I was a little boy, I've never paid to see a Yankee game in my life. Like between working the World Series and getting tickets for my friends and my friend's mother, it's like the greatest thing in the world. I've never paid to see a Yankee game. But since I I've moved down to Florida, I've lost all my superpowers. So now I got to pay like everybody else. Although I could hit her up for tickets if I really wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've also been I've also been to Yankee Stadium, but I think I think as you went to the new one, it was the old one I went to. Yeah. So I was quite a few years ago when I went. Yeah, and I must admit it is a great atmosphere in there. And although actually the tickets are relatively affordable to get in, I'll tell you that the cost of the beer and stuff in there is a little bit more pricey. <laughs> So, last week then, you, yeah, getting in with fine, but once you're in, that's the issue. Yeah, so last last week then, you trailed us. You 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 trailed off a, with a little little few stories there that you you teased us with, and that we didn't hear afterwards. We did chat a little bit afterwards, didn't we? So so you you said you had some. This is an interesting one. Funny morgue stories. <laughs> oh, the morgue stories. Yeah. All right. You want to hear morgue stories? So, in the police academy, right. I was, you know, like I said, my, I was with a group of 250 people. I was in a, no, 1,200. I was like in a mid-sized class. So in my classroom was 50 or 60 people. So our police academy instructor said, all right, tomorrow we're going down to the morgue, you know, and they prepared us, you know, you know, don't freak out and everything. So the following day, it was like a school trip. Like you see like a parent, you know, like the teachers taking kids. We're in our police academy uniforms. We look like little shitheads. And in lower Manhattan, you have Bellevue Hospital, which is a very large hospital. And in the basement, they have the morgue. So I didn't know what to expect. I knew about the morgue from what I saw on television shows where there's a guy in a lab coat next to a slab. You know what I mean? We go into the basement. Holy shit. It was like a, a Jiffy Lube uh, oil change center. Like there was like eight, ten slabs in a row and they were cutting, man. So... Like between each slab, they've got a produce scale hanging. Like, remember when you were a kid, your mother would take like a melon or a lettuce and she puts it in that produce scale to weigh it. Yeah. That's yeah. What they've got between each prep station, and they're pulling people's brains out and weighing it, people's organs and weighing it. And I'm like, what the fuck? And they're making jokes about it. Like they pulled one guy's brain out, and it was like 1.2 pounds, and they're goofing around like he must have been a moron because his brain only weighed like 1.2 pounds. <laughs> and I mean, the smell of death was just terrible. They gave us um, Vicks menthol rub. So you open up that jar and you put it underneath your nose to kind of mask the smell of death. And I remember while I was at the morgue that day, you had some kid that was shot multiple times and he was like duct tape and hog tied. And there's a medical examiner. He had this tool that looked like a needle nose pliers and he's pulling bullets out of this kid. Right. And he's dumping it in this metal tin. And standing over his shoulders like this old homicide detective, like eating a McMuffin and having a coffee, right? And he turns <laughs> to the medical examiner and he goes, what do you think? And the medical examiner goes, suspicious suicide. And everybody starts laughing. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, the morgue is no joke, man. I, I've been in there a handful of times and it's like, oh God, when you, when you see what happens to people on the other side. So in New York, when somebody dies, like in their house or apartment or even in the street, the police come and, the, and the, the responding cops do like a preliminary investigation. They call the supervisor. 
He guides you what to do. Then the detectives come. The detectives will look around. They'll poke around. They'll make some phone calls. Then you've got to wait for the medical examiner. Now that could take, people drop dead in New York all the time. It's, you got 9 million people and there's only like one or two medical examiners floating around. So you can, we call it sitting on a DOA. So you can stay, you're sitting with that body until the medical examiner shows up and says, yeah, this isn't a suspicious death. Tell the family they can call the funeral home or yeah, this is a suspicious death. We're going to take the body down to the morgue. So you can be sitting with the deceased person and it's the most oddest, awkward thing because I've been in, in an apartment or a house with a dead person for hours, just me and them. And they're in the other end of the room and like, you know, you see a pair of feet coming out of the kitchen and you're sitting in the living room watching television. Or I've been in apartments and houses where somebody dies and the family's there and they're grieving, but you can't leave. And you feel it's such an awkward thing because, and most of the time they're nice and respectful, they understand, but it's the most awkward thing to be in a room with total strangers with their deceased as they're grieving, going through this process, and you're sitting there like a bump on a log, like, you know, reading a newspaper, you know, it's just, it's just so odd. So did I tell you the story about the guy that moved the body? No, no. All right. No, no, so no. One such story is there was this cop that I knew that wasn't particularly fond of him. It's the early 90s. He's got a foot post. He's by himself. And a uh, call comes over. In, in a housing project, like on the 13th floor, he goes up there and uh, one of the neighbors discovers their neighbor, an elderly man, died in his sleep. So they call the paramedics, paramedics come, they go, yeah, he's dead a couple of hours. So they go to leave. So the cop doesn't want, it's a Friday night, he wants to go out drinking, the last thing in the world he wants to get stuck with is sitting with this dead body in an apartment overnight. So he tries telling the paramedics, Hey, can you take him? You know, can you get, you know, and they go, we can't take him. You got to wait for the medical examiner. <laughs> so he gets pissed off. So the two paramedics leave all their equipment. They leave about 20 minutes later, a call comes over on that floor, a cardiac. Well, the same two paramedics hadn't gone far. They were around the block. So the same two paramedics come, come out of the elevator. They come running down the hallway with all their equipment. This time, the guy that was dead in the, dead in the bed, like two, an hour ago, is now in the hallway and they go what the fuck is this and the cop goes oh shit he goes you're not gonna believe this after you left the guy jumped up and went oh shit and he ran through the apartment he opened the door and he died again and you're like, Get the fuck out of here. you moved his body because now the guy's got rigor mortis so he's kind of stiff like he's in the position he died in the bed and now it like he dumped him in the hallway so they're fighting with him the sergeant shows up they explain what happens to the sergeant he gets suspended, loses 30 vacation days, and gets transferred out of borough. If that happened nowadays, he'd probably get arrested or lose his job. But that was the wow. good old bad days. Yeah. So keep his job. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine. No, he, he got up himself. He, he got up. He just moved. It's like, <laughs> yeah, come on, wise guy. You know, it's funny. I know that guy. I mean, uh, I grew up with his cousin. It just, just, by chance that that's how I, you know, I know him. And it's like, I couldn't believe when he became a cop, I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work out well. You know what I mean? Like I knew he was a nitwit before this happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not a good recipe for being a cop. Is it really that ideally? So guys, you had a question as well that you were to ask uh, the tail end of the last episode, if you recall. Well, to be fair, there was a, there was a couple of questions that was obviously we, we've gone through sort of the, the, the morgue stories. 
I'm absolutely fascinated by the two nuns that you said that, that, that were committing auto auto or theft or whatever. So I don't know whether or not you want to sort of just, just talk me through that because I'm absolutely fascinated how he came across these two nuns. Yeah, um, early 90s, my part, it was a Saturday. My partner and I are on patrol and we get flagged down by these two attractive young women dressed as nuns in gray nun outfits with the habits and everything. And I'm like, come on. Like they're waving us down. And in that neighborhood, there were two colleges. So you had fraternities and sororities and they were always pulling stunts to get into their fraternity or sorority, right? So I was like, yeah, okay. They're, they're, they're going to try to con us with some bullshit. And these two women were wringing their hands. And what had happened was Mother Superior went away for the weekend. They took Mother Superior's car without permission. Um, their uh, convent was in Westchester County. They came down to the Bronx. They parked the car in a pizzeria slash restaurant parking lot that has a big sign that says, if you park here and don't eat here, we're towing your car. They go and do some shopping. They come back an hour or so later. The car is gone. The restaurant tells them it's at the um, the tow yard. They go to the tow yard. The guy goes, 100 bucks, or we're not releasing your car. So they call not, they flag us down. So after I figure out that this is real, you know, because for 20 minutes, I thought they were pulling my chain. <laughs> I put the two nuns in the backseat of the car. I drive to the tow yard. So it's a big gated area. And I don't know how it is in the UK, but, and I hate to say this, but everybody in the towing business, they're usually scumbags. Like they have no heart whatsoever. <laughs> they can't get into this like fortified place. So I keep hitting the police siren, right? This big fat bastard comes out of a trailer eating a slice of pizza and his fly is open. And I'm sitting here with two nuns. And uh, I says, listen, can, can you get their car out? Come on. They're nuns. He goes, hundred bucks. So he wouldn't budge. So I said, all right. So this is before ATMs and stuff. I went to the precinct. I went up to my locker. I got like 50 bucks out. I borrowed like the other 50 bucks and I gave it to the nun. And I says, here, go get your car out. And, you know, so she's like, I'll pay you back. And I'm like, nah, that's all right. She goes, no, no, give me your phone number. I'll pay you back. I said, okay. So she gets her car out. The two nuns couldn't have been happier. They bring the car back up to Mother Superior, right? So you know how it is. When you lend somebody money, it's always a pain in the ass to get it back. And especially nuns. Don't lend your money to clergy. <laughs> so what happens is a week or so later, I was living with my parents. I was like between apartments. I was in my early 20s. And my dad, who's a real smart ass, I come through the door and he's got this big shit eating grin and he goes, hey, Sister Samantha called. And I said, okay. And he goes, Sister Samantha. And I go, dad, she's a nun. She's not black. And he goes, oh, I don't care who you date. He goes, what, what wait, wait, a nun? Why is a nun calling here? Like, he thought it was like a Motown singer or something. I go, no, it's a real nun. So I call this nun up and we work out this thing like on a sat again on a Saturday. I, I couldn't just go to the convent and ask for Sister Samantha and collect a hundred bucks. I had to go to this, it was like a fucking spot movie. I had to go to park and sit on a bench and I'm like feeding ducks. And then she kind of snuck off the property and she came over. She had an envelope with a hundred bucks on in it. And I says, you know, I, I gotta ask. I says, you're a young woman. I says, you know. Are, are you happy with the decision you made, you know, to go to become a nun at like 25, 26 years old? She's a little older than me. And she goes, yeah. She goes, are you happy with your choice? I said, yeah. And that was the last I, I kept in touch with her for a little while, but that was the last I ever saw her. But yeah, I lent two nuns a hundred bucks to get their car out of a tow yard. <laughs>
Brilliant, brilliant story. Just I tell love you, that. if there's any serendipity in the world, those two nuns will listen to Tallboy Radio and hear that story and think that's the guy. <laughs> the thing well, that they have to the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully so. Yeah. <laughs> the other question, guys, that you wanted to ask was about the whenever you see it in movies, you know, so the the cops turn up, they secure the crime scene, and then the FBI roll in, and it's like a pissing competition. You know, this is our this is our scene now, boys. You know, and, and they move you on. Is that how it is? They try. Yes, they 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 try. Well, first they come in under the guise, let's work together, but they never want to share anything with you. Basically, my experience, they show up like an unwanted house guest. Like you're sitting down at dinner at five o'clock at night and they bang on your door and say, hey, what's for dinner? That smells good. (laughs) You know what I mean? And they don't even bring like a bottle of wine. So that's been my experience. Um, I've got two two things with them. Um, One was our queen's office had a case on. Have you ever heard of John Gotti? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I tell you this story last week? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Okay. So John Gotti's son-in-law, John Gotti had a daughter, Victoria Gotti. She actually had a reality show called Growing Up Gotti. She was married <laughs> to a guy who basically, he ran uh, with, with a Mets play out in Queens. There's this neighborhood, and it's all body shops, junkyards, uh, motor places, anything to do with the auto industry, right? And for you to operate in that neighborhood – you got to pay him money. I mean, you just can't open up a business and go about your business. Someone's going to land on you and say, hey, you got to kick up and you got to use his private sanitation company. You've got to use his person that's supposed to collect the waste oil. So it's like the second you get in there, you got to play by his rule. So what our queen's office did was they opened up a junkyard. And we filled it with cops, undercover cops, and we filled it with cars. And we were expecting, you know, him to send a couple of goons over there to smack around our undercovers. Well, he shows up and we couldn't believe it. Like, why the fuck would he come in here? Like, insulate yourself, man. But uh, he shows up and starts telling us how it is. Oh, you can't come in here and and do this shit. Don't you know who I am? And like, yeah, we know who you are. So (laughs) literally... So over about a year and a half, right, we're paying him protection money. We're using his private sanitation company, which is a rigged bidding system. When you went in, in the United States, like when you dismantle a car, you got all the waste oils, right? Antifreeze, transmission fluid. They don't want it leaking into the ground. So you're supposed to have a company that comes and takes these waste oils. Well, there was a company coming around that would give you a receipt that they collected the waste oil. They didn't give a fuck if you drank it. You know what I mean? Like they didn't give a shit. So... Our office was into him for about a year, year and a half. He had no idea we were doing it with the Queens District Attorney's Office. And what winds up happening is probably about November or December, the FBI catches wind and they go to the Queens District Attorney's Office and say, hey, we've got a tax evasion case on him, too. Let's pool our resources and go after him together. Well, the Queens District Attorney's Office like, thanks, but no thanks. We've got this. We're going to wrap this up in a couple of months. We don't want you know, we, we don't want you stealing our thunder. Next thing you know, a story is leaked to the major newspapers that they have a tax case on him. So now all of a sudden he goes, oh, shit, I got a problem. Now he starts getting people in line. He starts threatening people. Anybody he could, You can get somebody killed that way because anybody who he perceives as a, a weak link, 
is going to get handled, either threatened or in some cases, you know, they can be murdered, right? If you don't think a guy is going to stand up and there's this guy standing between you and 15 to 20 years, well, he's got to go. So the funny story is he owned the scrap metal processing place and he called in two guys who I guess he thought might talk. And these guys had nothing to, they weren't cooperating, like, by the way, he calls them into his trailer and while they're getting the shit kicked out of him and smacked around, he had his goons with the heavy equipment pick up their cars and crushed into fucking cubes, right? <laughs> so after they got out of the trailer and caught a beating, they get their keys handed back to them, and their cars are about the size of this desk. <laughs> they got crushed into fucking cubes. Jesus. <laughs> so uh, our office wow. him up, and he got like nine years. But yeah, there, there definitely there, there are pissing matches with with different jurisdictions like that. Wow, because you always think that that kind of stuff. I'm sure it goes on, and there's going to be competition between the different places. But you you always think it gets a little bit exaggerated just to make an extra storyline in the movie, don't you? Nope, it happened. <laughs> no, it happened. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. I tell you, I, I've got a question for you, actually. It's not related to anything we talked about. It's something that I read online once. So. If you're in the states and you get you get pulled over by the police, more more often than not, is it true that you touch the the rear light, the rear light, one of the rear lights with your thumb, so that you're leaving a thumbprint on there where, where something that bad to happen during that stop? Is that a true story? I've never heard that before, but I think what you're getting at is a lot of times what cops will do is when they pull a car over, they'll put their hand on the rear deck lid. Right. Right. Or they'll give it a tap. And there's two reasons for that. One is if someone's in there that, you know, like there's something in that car they don't want you to see. And someone, there's a shooter in there that can pop out and shoot you. They want to make sure that the driver didn't release that deck lid. Two, give it a tap that if there's someone tied up back there and they hear a police radio and someone gives it a thump to start kicking, you know what I mean? Like start making a lot of noise. Yeah, I've never heard that, but that does make a lot of sense as far as putting your prints on the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget where I read I, it. I, I see. I'd, I'd never, I'd, I'd never pick that story up, but it, it, it sort of makes sense that obviously you know when when you see the crime guys arrive and they do all the dusting, it's like oh there was this cop print on the the, the rear light or whatever it may be. So it, it sort sort of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for the fingerprints, like, all right, so when, when they fingerprint a car, right, especially the interior of the car, it's very difficult. It can happen, but the old traditional pixie dust method that you see on television, it's very difficult to get a lift in the interior of a car because of the molded plastic. Yeah. It just, it doesn't, it, yeah. pixie dust usually won't pick it up. So what they do is they fumigate it. From what I remember, they take crazy glue. And they put it in a dish and they put it inside the car and they roll up the windows and those fumes will stick to the oils in your fingers and will bring up the lifts on a molded surface. Then okay. they're able to photograph. Then they're able to photograph and yeah. or lift because it's different than the traditional powder. Wow. But it fucks up the interior of the car. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. I hate to see that done in my car. I got two very young children, and, and, and they leave sticky prints all over. That. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it would be very yeah. easy to fingerprint my car. <laughs> you don't need you don't need glue for that. Well, here's 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 another thing then that you often get 
whenever you see some movie about cops, like you say, there's always your your fat bastard cop, and the the love of donuts is that a thing? Is that a, is that a true thing? All right, so there's a chapter in my book, NYPD Lauren Disorder, called Sickness, Health, and Fat Bastards. And it's about <laughs> overweight cops. It's about overweight cops and cops trying to gauge this game, the system to get out on, on disability. The reason you see cops in donut places has nothing to do with the donuts, although they're all fat bastard cops, is <laughs> the coffee. Right. So most coffee places wow. like having cops in there because especially in like rough neighborhoods, the drug dealers will hang out in there. You know what I mean? Because they can hang out and drink coffee and someone comes in, they can do a quick deal. And the, and a lot of times these places, they're held hostage by the people that hang out in there. So if the cops are hanging out in there, then, then all bets are off, especially at night. A lot of these places, they love it when the cops come in because they're not going right. to get fucked with. But yeah, right. uh, cops drink a shitload of coffee, probably entirely too much. In, my, in that chapter, Sickness, Health, Fat Bastard, they'll tell you a funny story. So in the NYPD, there's three shifts in a precinct. I'm not talking about specialized units, but in a precinct, you have your midnights, your day shift, the evenings, right? And those cars run 24-7. Police cars run 24-7. You don't, it's not like you see down in Florida, different cops take the cars home. No, those cars go 24-7. So early in my career, I was doing four to 12s. And there were these two female cops that were obesely overweight, both weighed well over 200 pounds, probably closer to 250 each, 500 tonnage, right? <laughs> so we used to have the Chevy Caprices that had the bench seat. It wasn't bucket seats. It's a bench seat, right? So me and my partner would get their car from the day shift, right? They would throw us the keys and you go in the back seat and it was like a fucking who's who of where they spent the day. There was McDonald's bag, Dunkin' Donut bag, sandwich. I mean, these two, in addition to being fat, they were pigs. And they would eat this shit and just fucking toss it in the back seat. So you'd have to clean out the car after they got it done. But every time they got, we, for whatever reason, we always got their car. Anytime a new car came in within a week or a month, their weight would break the supports in the bench seats. So you would go back. So you'd step on the gas and you'd go into the fucking back seat because. <laughs> would break it. So I had to go to a local dairy and borrow a couple of milk crates and I would shove the milk crates in the back seat of the police car. This way, me and my partner didn't like fly into the back seat. If we stepped on the gas, to go on a heavy call. Right. And then if we made an arrest, we had to take the milk crates out and put them in the trunk and put the bad guys in there and then drive really slow that we didn't crash into the back bad guys. <laughs> So anyway, these two women, they were a liability. I mean, grossly overweight. They barely got out of the car. And actually, their uh, their undoing was, was me. So one day, it was the end of our day shift. And for whatever, uh, no, no, I know what it was. I had traffic courts, so I did a day shift. And I was chasing a burglary suspect who went out a window. And I'm chasing him down Broadway. And I'm putting over his description. And as I'm chasing him, I see these two obese female cops from my precinct writing a parking ticket. And I see, as I'm chasing them, putting it over the radio, I see one of them turn the radio up because they hear it, right? She pretends like she doesn't see us. And I go, the kid goes racing past them and I go racing past them and I curse at them and I keep chasing the kid. I finally catch him. My partner shows up. We put him in the radio call. We bring him into the precinct. When they came into the precinct in front of the desk, I just thought, abusing them like 
you two pieces of shit, you know, you couldn't have put your foot out. You couldn't have thrown your radio at him, like got in front of him. <laughs> so the sergeant came over and he's like, what's going on? And I explained it to him and he goes, all right. And he separated them. So he took them out of a radio car and he put them on foot at opposite ends of the precinct, hoping it would motivate them to lose weight. And it didn't. But <laughs> <laughs> Oh, bless him. Bless him. One of the things I want to ask you. Sickness, health, and fat bastard? Yeah. Oh, go on. All right. So the New York City Police Department, you have what's called unlimited sick. So you can call out three times a year and no one's going to bust your balls. So say I wake up with a sore throat, I'll call in and they'll, they'll put me on administrative sick or regular sick. And you can do that three times a year. And it could be from a couple of days. If it goes past that, they insist you come in and see a police surgeon, which is really a bullshit doctor who doesn't care. It's like an unpaid <laughs> like a paid sex worker has no interest in you whatsoever. You can walk in there missing like like Monty Python when John Cleese gets his arm cut off. <laughs> yeah. like, no, you go back to work. You know what I mean? Like, so there was this guy that we used to we used to call him Vavoom because he was so loud. You could have 300 people in a bar and you know this motherfucker was in there the second you walked in like you could hear him. <laughs> And he, oh, he would always open his mouth and not know what was going on. Like one time at a Christmas party, he's standing next to some cop he doesn't even know. And he's commenting about another, a female cop. And he's like, wow, she's really hot. Too bad she's a lesbian because I'd really like to hook up with her. She's talking to the guy. She's, he's talking to the woman's brother. Like he always <laughs> kicked out of him. So he was a drunk. He, was always, he would always call in sick. Well, if you call in sick more than three times a year, they put you on, they put you in a special program, which means they can show up at your house. And if they show up at your house while you're out sick and you're not home, you lose 30 vacation days, they put you on a year of probation. So anybody that goes more than sick, you stay in your fucking house and answer the phones. Like it's a heavy hit. Well, this cop Vavoom lives 70 miles in upstate New York. He figured they're never gonna fucking check on me. <laughs> goes out, gets hung over, goes sick, right? So now it's in the afternoon. He's starting to feel a little better. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go down to the pub and have a couple of cocktails. He goes to the local bar, 70 miles from New York where he lives, right? He's having a couple of drinks. Some guy walks into the bar dressed in business casual. The guy's got cop written all over him. Anyone would notice this but him. The guy's <laughs> holding a folder, right? And the guy with the folder comes, stranger comes into the bar with a folder. He goes up to the bartender and he goes, um, do you know where Willow Lane is? And before the bartender can answer, this cop goes, oh, Willow Lane? Yeah, you make two rights, you make a left, it's right up the corner. I live there. Who are you looking for? And the sergeant's looking at his ID photo, he goes, you! Spend it in the bar. <laughs> hey, of all the places to get suspended, it's better to be suspended in a bar than somewhere else. Oh, Come on. Stupid motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just, just <laughs> couldn't keep his mouth shut. <laughs> speaking of bars, and what, speaking of bars, whatever you see on TV shows, there is always a cop bar. Is that is that a thing? Oh, yeah. See, cops don't like, yeah, there are cop bars, and, and they tend to be in nicer neighborhoods, although early in my career, there was a bar in the South Bronx we used to call Star Wars. Because of all the fucked up people were in there. Remember the movie Star Wars, the cantina scene? Like, dun, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. yeah. There was that camp, hose, fucking people on methadone, like, like nodding out on the bar. Yeah, there was a couple of those, right? There was another bar. There was a big moose head above it. Everybody would shoot into the moose head. 
But yeah, but most cop bars tend to be in nice neighborhoods. Cops just want to go and have a couple of drinks and, and hang out with other cops and not get fucked with. Yeah, that's definitely true. But there was a right next to my old precinct. There was a bar called Pauline's and they had the greatest scam in the world. So before direct deposit, right, you would get your check every other Thursday. So what Pauline's would do is it was genius. After work, cops would the check. A lot of times the check cash in places were closed or the bank was closed. Cops would go into Pauline's. You would give the bartender your check. They would cash your check as provided you bought a drink or got something to eat. So guys wouldn't fucking leave. You know what I mean? Like it was nice. the greatest thing in the world. But upstairs in Pauline's, they used to have this um, like a um, like a, a banquet hall. I wouldn't call it a banquet hall, but a room where they would have bachelor parties and shit. The, the, the parties that used to go up on up there, those bachelor parties. I'm not really a bachelor party guy, but I went into I went to a bachelor party once and I kid you not, there was this female that they used to hire for these parties. And she was able to shoot hard boiled eggs out of her anatomy. Right. <laughs> so I walked into this party, she's laying on a table and she goes, batter up. And she's got and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And she had a bowl of hard boiled eggs and she's putting it in her box. And she's shooting across the table, across the room, and the and the cops have a wiffle ball bat, and it's like batting practice at a bachelor point. And she's throwing curves and sliders and fastballs. And my friend fouled one off and hit the groom in the head with, with a hard boiled egg. It was a different time, but yeah, I said I'll never forget that. She they brought out these eggs and she yelled batter up, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I... <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds genius. That sounds that does sound absolutely genius. It does. One it of does. the things you, you you sort of mentioned it. You you mentioned it to the last last week, I think, Vic, and 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 I'm not sure we got to the end of the story, but there was the and I just wrote it in my notes, and I've just put the line up, beating up sort of thing, and it was. A, did you mention a story about where you got some guys and? in a lineup and they ended up beating each other up oh, or they yeah. ended up beating up one of the guys. Yeah, this is a wild story. So I'm in high school. Like, let's go before I become a cop. I'm in high school and I'm a little smart ass. I mean, I listen, I went to Catholic high school. They had corporal punishment and I got hit by a lot of corporals. But as you can see, I probably deserved it. <laughs> so I was, I was fucking around in class one day and this English teacher bitch slapped me in front of everybody. And I was, I was like a junior or a senior and I was mad. Like I really wanted to hit him. And I said, nah, let it go. Fast forward five, six years later, there's this crackhead and he's running around the Bronx. And what he's doing is he's jumping out of his car and doing strong arm purse snatches of women. And each time he's doing one of these robberies, it's getting more and more violent. Like he punched one woman in the face. Another woman didn't let go of her bag and he dragged her. So he's, it's getting more and more violent. So we had, we had the license plate number of the car. So my partner and I are driving around the precinct. We see the car parked in a short stay motel parking lot. So when he comes out, we fucking grab him. We bring him into the precinct. And he's like this fucking troll character. He's got like the meth mouth. Fucking hair is crazy. And he keeps, yeah, like we're abusing him, laughing at him. He's like, this isn't funny. I'm like, <laughs> right? So, so it's a Saturday night. When you've got when you've got to do lineups, they like the detectives to do this, right? And this is early in my career. So we brought him over to Bronx Homicide where seasoned detectives, in theory, would do the lineups, right? We get there, we get to Bronx Homicide. Oh, so 
So I'm calling the victims up and telling them to go to Bronx Homicide. I go to one house and it's my high school English teacher, the guy that bit slapped me. His wife's a victim, right? And now he's a Bible beating <laughs> Christian, holy roller. And it's like, have you read the good book? I'm like, yeah, I have. Thanks, but I got to get your wife down to view this lineup, right? And he's just being a pain in the ass. We get everybody down to Bronx Homicide. Typical Bronx fashion, there's like five homicides that night. There's no detectives to be found. So if we don't do these lineups in a couple of hours, we got to cut this guy loose. So my partner goes, what are we going to do? I says, I'll find fillers. So I needed five white males that were fucked up looking because he's <laughs> fucked up looking. You can't put like a professor <laughs> with a pipe, you know what I mean, in a lineup. You know what I mean? It's kind of got to be a white male, same age. You know what I mean? Glasses, no glasses, right? So I says, I know where I'll go. I went to this bar on Fordham Road, and I pulled five Hall of Fame drunks out of this loser bar. Like, who wants to make 20 bucks a pop, motherfucker? I was like a Hollywood talent agent. Nope. You, you. I pulled five drunks out. They smell. I throw them. We had, like, this big Ford LTD. I drive them to the precinct, right? And these are rough guys. Like, these are construction workers, right? So the lineup goes like this. There's five or six spots. And they all sit down in a chair, and each one of them has a piece of paper with a number in it. So this way, when the person comes in on the other side of the glass, can go number five, right? So I, I tell the bad guy, I go, where do you want to sit? He goes, number two. I go, all right, have a seat. So he sits down, right? So before you know it, there's some static between the, you know, the scumbag and the fillers. Like, they're arguing. And I'm like, guys, I'm giving you 20 bucks. Shut the fuck up, right? So... <laughs> My partner's in there with them, and I'm dealing with the victims, right? So one by one, I'm bringing them in. The woman comes in. She looks number two, number two, number two, right? First three or four lineups go without a hitch. The last lineup is my high school teacher and his wife, right? This is when things get weird. So before that lineup, the bad guy turns around and says he wants to change his spot in the batting order. He goes, I don't want to be number two anymore. I want to be number five. I said, all right, be number five. So he gets up with his number. He walks over to the guy sitting in number five seat. He goes, and he throws him a, he throws him a card with number two on it. He goes, get up, I'm sitting there. The construction worker gets up and goes, how about I knock out what fucking left of your teeth? And I'm like, boy, I'm <laughs> down, right? So they switch, right? They switch. I bring the victim in. and my partner's in there with them. I'm in the other side of the glass. And I go, okay, is there somebody you see in there? And if you do recognize somebody... Where do you know them from? And she looks fucking right at number five. She's staring at him. All she's got to say is number five. He's the guy that robbed me. We're done, right? She starts crying. I go, what's wrong? She goes, I can't ruin this man's life. I go, lady, you're not going to ruin anyone's life in there. I said, do you recognize somebody? And now she's starting to argue with me. I can't do this. I don't want to participate. I go, this isn't participate. Do you know somebody in there? Or don't you, right? All of a sudden, the drunks jump up and they just start beating this guy's ass, my robber, inside inside the room, right? So now I got to get up. I'm running inside. It, what it must it must have looked like something on Benny Hill. Like, <laughs> me and my partner are trying to separate, pull drunk, pull these drunks off this guy. They're choking the shit out of him, right? I separate it. Soon as we get everything quieted down, he turns around and goes, did she pick me? <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> so now we can't use that lineup. But, I mean, what did it matter? We already had him picked out of three or four to begin with. So he wound up getting three, four years. 
my high school English teacher kept trying to get me to become a Jehovah Witness, and I was like, <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> so that's a story from my book, The NYPD. Well, I'll, I, sh I, shall, uh, I shall definitely look forward to reading that one. But Thank you. No, no worries. And one thing I have to ask, it, it's really obvious when you listen to you today, when we listened to you last week, when you tell these stories, there's a great deal of passion about it. And you, you clearly took a lot of joy out of your job. And I know one of the first things you opened up with last week was sort of saying, you've got to know when to get off that merry-go-round. Is there any little bit of you that would like to just go out there one last time and experience those things? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? I love the adrenaline. Like, since I've retired, there's been nothing that's replaced. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I'm, I'm not somebody that's going to jump out of a fucking plane. I'm not crazy. Or go <laughs> running with the bulls. You know what I mean? Like, I enjoy getting into car chases. I enjoy bailing out of a car and chasing somebody and putting it over the radio or looking for the bad guy. There's been nothing in my life that has replaced that. And, and, and I, you know, it, it's, I'm disappointed by that. The one thing that I still get adrenaline, I, I play softball on Tuesday nights. The only thing close is when I'm up at bat and, 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 I, and I drill a ball out of the infield. And, and now it's like, am I going for a single? Am I going for a double? You know what I mean? That's the closest and it's it's not even it's like drinking diet pepsi you, you know yeah. what i mean when you when you yeah. want a pepsi so yeah. oh yeah i definitely i miss the action i don't miss it's the bureaucracy and the nonsense i had to deal with yeah 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 i think i think everybody can relate to the bureaucracy in their jobs can't they absolutely gather yeah no absolutely one of the things that and and we're, we're slightly moving away from the stories one of the things that you said last week and and it's something that that my daughter picked up was that was it did, did you say it was your ex-partner that narrated was it the Times square killer on was it netflix or something like that was it yeah my old partner worked in bronx homicide for like over 20 years and uh netflix approached him he never worked on that case like that case uh, occurred yeah, that because that, uh, that was what I was going to ask. I was going to say, were you or him actually involved in that? That, no, that was going no, to be no, my no. That, right. That guy, that guy was apprehended either before I was hired or, or shortly thereafter, and I was a minion at the time. I wasn't a detective yet. No, but my old partner had so much experience with homicide that that Netflix or a company that did business with Netflix asked him to narrate it. So he's right. sitting behind a desk and he's explaining how. A, criminal homicide works and he worked yeah. on serial killers in the nypd he worked on cold cases with serial killers so he was able you know to, to give his guidance and he narrates the show right yeah funny enough after you said okay. that, I, I had to dip into netflix and give that a watch because i'd seen it pop up for, on, on the recommendations for you because i watched a lot of true crime stories did and you watch it yeah I've, I've watched we watched about two or three episodes of it i think i've got a couple left to watch but yeah really good Really good. Dude, when I was a kid, we used to go down to Times Square, right? So that place, as you as you saw on television, right? That place was a fucking, like, Calcutta. Like, yeah. anything goes. So for a 13, 14-year-old boy, like, we used to go down there to try to get fake IDs, fireworks. Like, they had, like, the, 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 the what do you call those things? Chuckas stars and noon chucks. Like, everything a 14-year-old shouldn't have was down <laughs> there, including sex shops. So what we would do is we'd pull our money together, right? We'd get on the train. And if we went down there with like three or four of us, we'd inevitably get robbed. And then we'd go back up to the Bronx with no money or sometimes our ass kicked. Then we would go down there sometimes with like 10 or 12 of us. And, you know, the cops aren't stupid. You see 10, 12 white kids 
pop up out of the train like, come here, where are you from? Pelham Bay. Get back on that fucking train and go back to Pelham Bay. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't have much luck going down there. But, uh, yeah, that was the Wild West when we were kids. See, I've, obviously, I've been to Times Square since. And, and to see it on that TV show, it was very, very different back then, wasn't it? Oh, it was bad. So you got to remember, like, all right, so before Times Square was a shithole, right? That whole area was movie theaters. And, you know, I mean, it goes back to vaudeville, you know, like big theaters and shows and and playhouses. And then it kind of fell into despair. And what wound up happening was the mafia bought up a lot of those properties or rented them and put in X-rated movies. Then from X-rated movies, it went into sex shops. Then it went into like live sex shows. I mean, and then that brings an element. It brings a criminal element, right? So then you got you got horny men that want to go there. Then you got people preying on them. Then you've got prostitutes going there. I mean, it was I mean, it was just it was a rest a recipe for disaster. I could imagine. Yeah. Now, like I say, you, you saying your partner there was a homicide detective, where with serial killers. Did you ever work in any homicide cases? Sort of, yeah. Um, I wasn't in homicide, but like I think I was explaining to you guys, was I? T- did I tell you guys a story about the cars being shipped to China? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Right. So on yes. those wiretaps. Yeah. All right. So on those wiretaps, we got guys talking about bumping other people off. So what we would do is we'd start doing the groundwork. We'd start IDing the guys. Where are they talking about? Where did this homicide occur? Who have they been associated with that doesn't isn't around anymore? And then we would, you know, contact homicide because ultimately they're going to take it once we take the case down. We don't want the homicide detectives to pull our guy off the playing field before we take our case down because the homicide's already in the past. It's not like they're going to do a homicide. They've already killed somebody. So then we'll bring them in at the end and then we'll wrap everything up. But I, I, I worked on the beginnings of homicide. Yeah. Yeah. So have you got any stories you can share no. with us, from, uh, you know, when you, you know, any of the cases that you worked uh, or whatever you think you said you'd, you'd, you'd been, you'd been to a few crime scenes where there was homicides. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Oh yeah. I got, I got two real good ones. All right. So it's the early nineties. It's a Saturday night, me and my old partner who, by the way, he was, he was killed years later, but we're on uh, we're doing a four to 12. We're coming out of the station house on our meal hour. It's about 10 o'clock at night and a female cop. I'll never forget. Hands us a slip of paper with an address. She goes, this didn't come through 911. Someone called the station house. They're yelling in Spanish. I think it's a cardiac. I said, all right. We rush up to this building. It's a six-story walk up. We're about the third floor, and you hear screaming and wailing, right? We run up the stairs. The apartment's full of people, and we're just, like, kind of swimming through people, right? And it's a galley kitchen. So as I come around the side, I see a pair of legs sticking out of the kitchen floor, right? There's a woman laid out on the floor. There's a man over her, and he's hugging her, and he's just crying, mom, mom, mom. And the kitchen is just covered in blood, just fucking splattered in blood. And you know, like, you know, when you cut your finger, blood is bright red, right? But like over time, and it dries, it turns like a a rust color. So the blood was dry over time. So we knew she had been there several hours. So I tell the, the young man, get up, get up. And she's laying on the floor, and she's just stabbed multiple times, right? So the boy that's the, the guy that's on top of her is his mother, the son. And I bring him into the living room and, you know, I'm not putting the screws to him. I'm just asking him simple questions. Like when was the last time you saw your mother? And he goes from being hysterical 
So all of a sudden now, now he's, he's, he's measuring his question. So I go, when was the last time you saw your mother? When was the last time I saw my mother? About an hour, uh, three yeah. hours ago. So every question I ask him, he starts repeating the question. He's buying time, right? So yeah. as you start looking yeah. around the apartment, the apartment's been ransacked, right? Just everything's pulled apart. But then the closer you look, it's staged. So when a burglar breaks into your house or apartment, right, he's going to start taking the drawers out and dumping shit all over the floor. He's not going to take the time of dumping a drawer and putting it back in, right? Mm -hmm. So that was odd. Then you had the contents of her bag was dumped upside down and put right back, right side up next to it. Usually they dump the bag and fucking toss it. It's right side yeah. up. And the credit cards were sitting right there. This is the early 90s before anybody knew you could track credit cards. That would have been the first thing they would have taken, right? So this isn't adding up. The detectives take him down to the precinct to interview him. And I'm tasked with my partner to gather evidence at the crime scene and work with the evidence collection unit, right? So I get back to the precinct an hour or two later and I ask the detectives what's going on. And they go, we don't know if he did it or not, but he knows a lot more than he's saying. And he's, he's, he's fucking weird. Like he's like, you know, he's going in circles. So the deceased had three brothers that lived across, uh, lived across the street. So the detectives told the three brothers, like, listen, your nephew definitely knows more than, than he's telling us. Maybe you can get it out of him. Well, the young man wants to go home. Now, in the United States, if you ask for an attorney, that's it. You can't question him no more. He didn't ask for an attorney, but he wanted to leave. So the detective said, okay, you want to go? Go. With the mindset, we'll go to his house first thing in the morning. We'll catch him before he gets out of bed and start this all over again, right? Because if he asks for the lawyer, all bets are off. So... He leaves with his uncles and they told him, maybe you can get more out of him, right? So in New York, when someone is killed, right? The responding police have to go to the morgue the following day to identify the body. So since I was one of the first ones there, it was my job. So before the body goes to the morgue, you've got, it's called a, a 95 tag. It's a little piece of cardboard. It's an oak tag thing with a little string to it. And you write your information, the deceased information on it. And you tie it, it sounds like a joke, but you tie it around their big toe, right? Yeah. So the next morning, I got to go to the morgue. So it's a Saturday, it's a Sunday morning. I'm in uniform. I got like three hours sleep. It's a skeleton crew down at the morgue. There's a young guy working there who doesn't know his ass from his elbow. And I go in and I got some paperwork and I say, I'm here to see this victim, right? He goes, okay. He goes into this large refrigerated room, right? And he wheels out a gurney. And he pulls off the sheet, and there's a Spanish guy with a beard. And I said, no. Female Hispanic, <laughs> give the name. He goes, oh. Puts the sheet over the dead guy's head, wheels him back into the room, right? Five minutes later, he wheels out another body. He pulls off the sheet. It's a black guy, a wino. I go, dude, I didn't come here to see everybody that got fucking whacked in the Bronx last night. I'm here to see her. I go, you know what? Fuck this. Let me in there. Right. I'm not playing hide and go seek with you. <laughs> so it, at the time, Jacoby Hospital had this big refrigerated room. It wasn't like you see in TV, like with the drawers. It was like something out of a horror movie. It was a big refrigerated room and there were gurneys and there was like eight, ten dead people in there. And I saw my handwriting on the toe tag on her foot. I pulled the sheet off. I go, that's her. I ID her. I fill out some paperwork. I go back to the precinct. And the detectives are all high-fiving each other. They're all excited. I go, what the fuck happened? 
So uh, thank God the detectives working that case spoke fluent Spanish. The next morning, they got up bright and early. They went back to the building. And when they hit the hallway of the building, they could hear yelling and screaming in Spanish. The three uncles confronted their nephew in the hallway, and they were yelling at him in Spanish. The police say you know more. What the fuck is going on? What happened to your mother? And he gave it up. So the cops, the cops stayed behind the stairwell, and basically, he was a crackhead. He, you know, he would he would go on these binges where he'd start stealing from his mother and abusing her. And she said, "Listen, I can't have you living here with me no more. You got to go. I don't want you in the house anymore." He took the carving knife, stabbed her to death. Right? Took a shower, took the murder weapon and the bloody clothes. He put it in a garbage bag, and he leaves the apartment and he leaves the door ajar hoping that while he's gone, one of the neighbors will come in and discover her, right? He comes back three hours later, no one walks into the apartment. Now he's like, fuck, because now people have seen him come back and forth. He can't keep coming back and leaving, right? So that's when he picks up the phone and he starts making phone calls. He calls his uncle, then he calls the police station. And that's what got the ball rolling. And I just checked, he's still in jail. And that happened in like, 1994, so we're going on close to 30 years, and he should stay there for the rest of his life. Yeah. Wow. Just going back to, you know, you, you've obviously, we, we, we've loved you having, on, having you on the last couple of weeks, and you've got loads and loads of stories. And so if, you know, if one of the big companies in America, whether Netflix or NBC or whoever it may be, if they, if they approached you and sort of said, right, Vic, come on, we, we want you to do a, a cop series, a truth, crime series or whatever what what would that look like would it literally be the stories from your book is that is that what it would is that what it would look like it would, would it be something else yeah i mean i i would love that and it could go either way i mean you could i could i could do a show a humorous show showing you know the humanity and behind the scenes funny stuff that goes on and you know i've got tons of dark stories too I mean, it, it just would. Oh, give me the dark story. Come on, dude. Give us a dark story, dude. You want, you want another dark story? <laughs> oh, I love a dark story. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? All right. <laughs> well, oh, but before, but let, let's back up. The cop that I was working with that night, he later died, probably about two years later, unfortunately. Him, he was working with another guy, and they go on a domestic. And I don't remember if a guy threw a mirror at them or a mirror broke in the apartment. But when they went to arrest this guy, the guy that I worked with that night slipped and fell and a shard of glass caught him in the femoral artery. And he died that night. Like they couldn't, they couldn't save him. He almost bled out and then he was going into heart attacks and strokes and really the guy's name was Vinnie Gadis, really a good kid died, you know, well before we should have, and it's it's a sad story. But a couple of years before that, so 4 to 12, I was working with another cop. It was like a Tuesday night, very slow, raining out, and uh, a domestic violence call comes over. So the dispatcher gives it to one car, and again, it's a slow night. So another car says, you know what, we'll back them. We're, we're going to go, right? So then the dispatcher comes over about 30 seconds later and says, raises that unit and says, I'm getting multiple phone calls on this. She goes like, I'm getting like 10 different phone calls on this from different places. So now you know there's something going on, right? When, when every yeah. neighbor in the building is calling up. So now we're backing. So now it's three cars coming, right? 
So the, the responding cops get to this building. It was like three, the, uh, it was like three story garden apartments. They pulled up to the side of the building. They didn't pull up to the front. And when they, and it was raining out when they got out of the car, they could hear screaming coming out of a window. And when you're young, you know, like most cops would have just ran around to the side and gone up the stairs. You know, these guys were in their early twenties. They said, you know what, let's go up the fire escape. Why they did it to this day, I don't know, but they did. So they climb up the fire escape. When they get up to the second or third story window, they look in the window. There's a woman laid out on the floor and there's a guy over her with a butcher knife and he's basically decapitating her. Jeez. So they get on the radio and they're like, you know, Central, he's fucking cutting her head off. Get the fucking cavalry here. So now everybody's flying, right? Everybody's like now, fucking, yeah, every in the rain, like guys are wiping out trying to get there, right? We pull up to the front of the building. So me, my, me and my partner pull up with another sector car. So we're the first two that arrive at the front door of the building. We pull up. We start running up the stairs. And this teenage boy is like 12, 13. He's running down the stairs. And he's like, he's killing my mother. He's killing my mother, right? As we're coming up wow. the stairs, we hear boom, 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 boom. Like six, seven, eight shots go off, right? So now we're pounding on the door. We're trying to kick in the door. And it gets quiet for a second. And then we hear our two coworkers, they're in the apartment now. And they're screaming, don't shoot, don't fucking shoot. And they're telling us their names. You know what mm. I mean? Because they don't want to get hit with friendly fire in case one of us panic and start yeah, yeah. firing through the door, right? So they opened the door and it was like something out of the fucking twilight zone. Because the first thing I noticed when I walked into the apartment was they shot him like six, seven times. It looked like someone lit a pack of firecrackers off in the apartment because all that gunpowder, right? So you got like a cloud of fire fireworks going on there. As you start walking around the floor, my feet are sticking to the floor because there's so much fucking blood. Like it's just like it's like stepping in paint. You're like wow. stop. It's like goosh, goosh, goosh. This motherfucker. So before he killed his girlfriend, he took a hammer and broke every fucking thing in that apartment. The toilet the stove, the walls, the countertop. Like he was going to hell and he did not care, right? Broke everything in the apartment. She's laid out on the floor and I'll never forget. There was like, a, like he basically cracked her skull that it looked like it was going in. And I mean, you know, on television, when people die with their eyes closed, they look peaceful. The look of horror on this woman's face, I will never forget. This is missing, right? So she's got a hole in her head. This is missing. And just, I mean, the amount of blood and he's dead, he's in the next room. So what happened was my two coworkers were pounding on the window. The guy stopped what he was doing and goes, oh, you want some of this? Grabs the knife, comes over to the window, throws open the window and he starts swinging at them out the window with the carving knife. So back then we had 38s, 38 caliber revolvers, which yeah, yeah. I know we go with nine millimeters now. It's a faster round, but 38 packs a fucking punch, especially up close and personal. So you got two guys with 38, six shots each. They unloaded into him. He goes flying back into the apartment. And what my friend told me was, he goes, it was like slow motion. He goes, he goes back with the knife in his hand and he goes, and he hit the floor like square backwards. And when he hit, the knife came out of his hand and went into the next room and my buddy was in shock. He goes, all I could think of was they're going to find this guy with no knife and think that we shot it on our man. I go, dude, you are good. You know what I mean? Like, it's so obvious what this fucking guy was doing. That's what he's like. They're going to think I shot it on our man. I go, dude, you are good. Don't even wow. fucking give that a second thought. 
So wow. I, threw them, I, I threw the two cops in the radio car and I rushed them down to the hospital to make sure they were all right. And later on that night, in the NYPD, they don't tailor your uniforms. It's like, you buy your uniform, it's on you to get it tailored. And most NYPD cops are not spending that money to go to a tailor. Like the pants, you watch any NYPD cop, not on TV, in reality, their pants are always fucking baggy. And he was sliding his hand over his knee. There was a knife. The guy cut through his pants with the fucking knife. Like, he put his hand on his knee. The guy got that close with that fucking butcher knife. Wow. Got through his pants. Dude, I had a couple stories like that. I had another friend. Him and his partner were chasing a guy in a midnight with a stolen car. And this motherfucker was just got out of prison. Like he was jacked, you know, doing push-ups and, and pull-ups in jail. Got into crack. They chased his stolen car. The guy crashes the stolen car. 99 out of 100 times when you're chasing a stolen car, the bad guy runs. He takes off and he's going the other direction, right? This motherfucker turned around and chased, charged them. And he was a big motherfucker, right? He punched my friend in the face and got his gun away from him, right? And shot my friend in the chest. But, like, he was wearing a bulletproof vest, so it just knocked the shit out of him. He goes down, right? He grabs his partner, was a short guy. And this is a true story. Gets his partner in a headlock, right? He's got the 38, and he's trying to shoot him in the head. But my friend's partner is, like, you know, swinging. So the shots are going wide, right? He's like, boom. Boom, he's shooting past his head, runs out of bullets, throws the gun, the cavalry arrives, they light that guy up, so now he's going to be, he's, you know, he's blowing around in a tube and shitting in a bag somewhere, right? So they, they light him up, so the kid that was, you know, had his head in a headlock, he's in the hospital, he reaches into his pocket to get some change for a soda, and he goes, ow, what the fuck? He pulls out of his pocket, he had a whistle. In the NYPD, you're supposed to carry a whistle. No one does. You keep it in your pocket for roll call in case they ask for it. Then you throw that fucking thing in your locker. <laughs> he still had it in his pocket. One of the fucking rounds ricocheted off the whistle in his pocket and melded it into like this, like it looked like a fucking asteroid. Wow. Shit. Oh, man. That is a close call. Oh, my word. Wow. So, so, just leading on from that, and, and I apologise if you could have said this. Have you been, have you been in a gunfight? Have you been shot at? Have you been hit at all? Or what's that? So, have you been in a, um, a a gunfight? Have you been hit by a, a bullet at all? Have you taken one for the team, as as we say over here? No, I, I've never, no, I've, I've never been shot, thank God. I never shot anybody, thank God. I, I was involved in a lot of things that you would think it would happen, but I've got a lot of, I mean, a lot of my friends either, you know, kill people, shot people, or they were shot myself. So the guy that got shot in the chest, I went to see him that night in the hospital. And I'm like, come on, open that shirt. I got to see this. And like, he had this fucking bruise, you know, it was yeah. like, it was a god awful thing, and they kept him in the hospital for a couple of days. But wow. yeah, I had a couple of friends. I had another friend. He walked past the guy at a housing project, and he said something's not right. When he turned around, the guy started shooting at him. And I mean, they were like literally ten feet from each other, just exchanging gunfire. Right? He doesn't hit the guy. He doesn't think he got hit. Right? He gets checked out and everything. He goes home. He got grazed. And he wound up getting lead poisoning. Like three days later, he wasn't feeling good. Like they had to like do something with his blood. Yeah, he got just from grazed. He, he got Shit. lead poisoning. That's, wow. I and mean, that's uh, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, those guns, like you say, 
that guy taking the shot to the chest and leaving a bruise like that. A couple of times when I've been in the States, I've had a go at the old firing range. And I think the last time I went there, I had a go at a Magnum. And gee whiz, you, that, that thing packs a punch. You've got to hold on to that or it's, it's coming back in your face. You've got to really hold on to that thing. And yeah, the power of those things, it doesn't surprise me to do that amount of damage. It's so funny you bring up a Magnum. So I'm a rookie cop, right? And like six months, a year out of the academy, the first thing I do is I go out and I buy the Dirty Harry gun. Like the uh, six-inch Smith & right? I'm like, this is fucking great. In New York City, the ranges are very small. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like a storefront, really, right? So I go to this range. I sign in. I pay my money. And the guy, the guy didn't even check my guns. He goes... He goes, you got ammo? I go, yeah, I'm good, right? Because the guy that sold me the gun sold me ammunition. And I knew nothing about guns at this time, right? Except for the one that I carried. So I'm in the booth with this 44 Magnum. My friend gave me this fucking, it's like hunting bear ammunition, right? It's not like for target practice. This is like for fucking killing a bear. And I'm like, kaboom, kaboom. And this is like fucking flames coming out of the gun. And I hear pounding on the booth in back of me. And I'm wearing the earphones and I'm hearing, stop, stop, fucking stop. And I'm like, what? I put the gun down. I take the thing off. He goes, what are you trying to fucking do? And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, let me see that ammunition. He goes, what are you trying to kill the Chinese guys around the block? He goes, <laughs> he goes I don't have the padding for that. He goes, you're going to fucking shoot my wall. <laughs> well, I, I, I've got to tell you a story. The first, the first time that we went, to the gun range it was i went with my, my story that i think you're gonna yeah. tell so yeah 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 it was me and my wife and my, and my brother and his wife so we we went and we went to the shooting range and we picked a couple of guns i think we picked like a walter ppk being british obviously we've got to have the james bond gun and the, yeah and the other gun it was like one as you as you fire it kicks back shoots out the shell now anybody who's fired a firearm knows one thing that shell comes out really really hot doesn't it yeah yeah so, so my brother's wife fires it. It pops straight up, straight into her cleavage. You know what I mean? So she, honestly, you know what? So she's dancing around trying to get this thing out with a loaded gun in her hand and turn around. Literally, this thing is pointed at my brother's stomach. You know, I mean, he's, now, fortunately, he's a care worker. So he, he's, he's had to disable a few people. So he just, he just goes into work mode and grabs, you know, grabs a hand, gets his hand on the weapon, pushes it away. So he was fine. I got, got all this on video. Meanwhile, the guy who was supposed to be showing us is too busy flirting with my wife and showing her how to shoot. You know, you know what I mean? He didn't even know what was going on behind him. Honestly, it's terrifying. We call that the hot brass dance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to it now. So, like, when I shoot, you know, every now and then, you know, you're just used to it. It's like, and if it's that bad, you put the gun down and you step back and you try to you know, get it out, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they should have explained that to you, like, if that fucking thing lands on you, put the gun down and step back and then take care of yourself. Yeah, man. Yeah, well, yeah. Things, I can just imagine, I mean, Adam, Adam's told me the story before, but I can just imagine, I won't mention the name of the book, but, you know, dancing around with this loaded gun in her hand and, 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 and obviously, you know, be, I say being taken down as such, and it was, it was the reaction after you, you will not sort of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah it just, was. And I, I, I got it all on video. I've got it all on video. Really? Well, really? We, we qualify. So in New York, we go out to, we have an outdoor range out in the Bronx, right? And it, it's like, it, it's like something out of the 1800s. So 
you've got this target and you put it out at the 25 yard line and it's on these metal, looks like a golf post stanchions, right? And every now and then someone will hit those fucking stanchions and a ricochet will come back and hit somebody. <laughs> it happens. I <laughs> the head. They had to take him to the hospital. Gee whiz. The other thing I learned that day is as well, not to fuck around with my wife because she has got a dead eye shot. I'm telling you now, they were all dead center in the heart and in the head. But I am not, you know, if we ever, ever moved to the States, I'm not pissing around on that woman. <laughs> Some people it comes natural to, you, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it just, it just, it, it just, without any training, they just, it just, they have the hand-eye coordination and they don't flinch. Yeah. Oh, she didn't. Yeah. Well, the one thing I find is like, so my first shot was really good. Then after that, I, you start to think about it and you overcorrect. You're thinking about what you have to do then to get it more accurate. And it, inevitably with me, it was making it worse. Yeah, you're 100% right. Just you got to be relaxed. When you start tensing up and you're anticipating the shot, you start jerking it. And when you do that, then you're, yeah. you know, you're all over the, you're all over the road. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're a little over the armor, but before we go, we definitely, definitely need to, to talk a little bit of NFL with you. Now I could like, I've, I've heard before, before we had you on, I did a little, always do a little bit of research as, as Gaz knows. And I listened to the Bleach Brothers podcast that you guested on with Jake and B word there. Yeah. So the two guys that we know, and you talked a little bit of NFL with them. And I'm pretty sure guys, if I let you guess, you'd probably be your 32nd guess as to who this chap supports. It's not the Steelers and it's not the Bears, which are our two teams. Uh, it just, Please don't tell me it's the Packers. For Christ's no. sake, don't tell me. That, thank Christ for that. Because I literally would have never spoken to you again, Vicky, if it was the Packers. So that that's okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm. Yeah, I mean, is is it an obvious? Is is it the Jets or the Giants? No. Yeah. Oh, right over the other side of the country for most of their existence. So yeah, the 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 Raiders. So how yeah, about LA? Oh, LA. Well, Los LV. Vegas now. I've been in Oakland. I mean, they're in Vegas now, but I've been an Oakland Raider fan since I was probably about eight years old. We didn't have any money when I was a kid, and my mother got these two sweatshirts or pullovers, you know, on sale. And one was the Cleveland Browns, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And then the other, <laughs> the Oakland Raiders with the guy with the eye patch. And uh, I said, I like that one. And my grandfather, who I worshipped and was a sports guy, goes, oh, they're a good team. And he explained to me, you know, they, they were like a renegade team and Al Davis yeah. story behind it. So I followed the Raiders since I was a little boy. When I was like 12, we were in California. I begged my parents to take me to the training camp. I live and die with the Raiders. How long have you been following the Steelers? I've been for, I don't know, quite a few years now, quite a few years. Like, so we, we first got into American football when it first started showing over here in the mid eighties. So it, yeah. but it was probably, I would say probably late nineties when I really got serious and started following the Steelers. I met Franco, you know, who Franco Harris is right. I do. Yeah. 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 I met Franco Harris. Who's like Franco Harris takes up a doorway. Like he's a, he's a mountain of a man. And I'm not talking yeah. fat. He's just a big guy. Like he comes through a doorway. It's like, Oh shit. This, there's not even light behind him. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I met him. I was working security at this event and, uh, I told him I was a Raider fan and I go, you know, the question <laughs> right? he starts laughing. I go, did you touch that? Did you catch that ball clean? And he just smiled and he wouldn't answer. I'm like, Listen, I, I've seen that wow. in my reception many, many times. It looked to me like he caught it nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like, listen, the Steelers were no joke back in the day. They're, they're such a well, unlike my team, they're such a well-run organization. They draft well. Um, they don't make knee-jerk decisions. They've had 
in my lifetime, three excellent coaches, right? To Chuck mm. Noel, Cower, and um, and this guy Tomlin is Tomlin, awesome. Yeah. You know, so the yeah. Raiders. I mean, they, I, I live and die with them, and I always say like it's it's like a bad relationship. Like fuck these guys. I'm not going to watch them next week, and <laughs> I guarantee yeah. I'll be in front of the TV next week. You know what I mean? And watch them lose again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Welcome, welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Although, although, although we 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 have a, a a bright spark in Justin Fields, who I think is going to be a, a a phenomenal quarterback, given the right system and the right playbook and the right weapons down the field and all of that. And if you just give him the ball and let him go and express himself, I think he could be uh, as good as he wants to be. But Unfortunately, at the moment, the Bears are just on the... We're slowly getting better from being fantastic when I first started watching them in the mid-80s and late-80s, and then we've had some horrendous years. Just like, uh, Although we did, get to court, we did get to a Super Bowl and we had Rex Grossman at quarterback. So, you know, the, that, that says something about it. Our defence was pretty good that year. That's all I can say. Yeah, the Bears, you know, uh, the Bears are owned by, by an elderly woman, right, still? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it just depends on, on ownership and can they, you know, it's, it's, it's ownership. It's the general manager they hire. Do they meddle behind the scenes? Like the Raiders, yeah. I don't think the, the owners, this Mark Davis, I don't think he really meddles much. His father was, his father would pull the strings, you know, tell, tell the coaches who he wants to play, who he doesn't want to play. Um, yeah. I don't know what the bears, the dynamic there, the Steelers, I know they let their, Man, they let their staff run that team. They don't yeah. get yeah. involved. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's funny because myself and Adam talk, obviously we talk a lot about NFL and, and actually Mike Tomlin has done, standing from afar, has done a phenomenal yeah. job with the Steelers just in terms of the, the, the egos he's had to manage, the ups and downs. He's obviously gone through the Roethlisberger and he's, he's managed Big Ben and he's managed Brown and you know lo- lo- loads of characters and stuff. And he's done he- he's done a really 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 good job actually. And and somebody that I mean m- myself and Adam we-, we we chat all the time about you know NFL. But it, as a non Steelers fan, I-, I can absolutely appreciate what what Mike Tomlin's done because he has done a phenomenal job there. The Steelers have screwed the Raiders over <laughs> in the last five years, right? So first they trade us Martavius Bryant. For a number three and a number five draft pick, Martavius Bryant plays, I think, a game for us, and now he's out of the NFL. Yeah. Then they trade us Antonio Brown for <laughs> and a yeah. number five draft pick, and God only knows what the fuck he's up to now. So, I mean, you know, the Steelers and the Patriots, the hoodie, Belichick, the same thing. Richard Seymour, Randy yeah. Moss, um, yeah. that Orlando Brown, the tackle. You know, I mean, and, and they always wind up going back to New England and doing better than when we had them. So yeah. we're, we're just like suckers waiting to be taken by con men. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, we, like I say, we're over the hour. But before we go, before we go, we're on the run up to Christmas now. Do you have any humorous Christmas stories you can share with us before you go? Yeah, I, I got a funny Christmas story. So in the <laughs> NYPD, two things. You're not supposed to be drinking, touching alcohol, around alcohol, and you're not supposed to be Christmas shopping, right? They don't want you doing that shit. Actually, the NYPD 
every just before about this time of year, they start what's called the holiday integrity program. <laughs> so that means internal affairs is out and about and they'll stop you when you come into the station house and search your radio car in the precinct parking lot, like open the truck to see if you're out Christmas shopping. Right. <laughs> so having said that, you got to be careful. So we had the in, in, inside a precinct. We have civilians that do clerical work and they're called PAAs or police administrative aides. And there was this older black woman who I really liked. Her name was Janie. And I used to call her Annie Jane because I have an aunt named Janie. And one day, you know, me and my partner are going out on patrol in a four to 12. And she goes, Ferrari, come here. I said, yeah. She goes, can you give me a ride? I said, yeah, sure. Annie Jane, where you got to go? She goes, I got to see a man about a horse. <laughs> and I go, see a man about a horse. She goes, that's all I can tell you. I said, all right. So she gets into the back seat of the car. We go up Broadway. It's a shopping area. She goes, stop here. So she makes a stop on Broadway. And she goes, I'll be back in five minutes. She gets out of the car. She goes up to the corner. She makes a right. So my partner goes, what the fuck is this? Like, well, obviously she does this. She's doing something she doesn't want us to know about. And she, and she figures she's going to distance us from it. Right. She gets back in the car and I can see she's got a bottle shoved in her, <laughs> shoved in her bag. Right. And I go, Annie Jane, what's the name of that horse? She goes, she goes two fifths. <laughs> Whatever it was, she, she was a fucking trip. Yeah, I mean, they, they don't, you know, it's they nitpick you so much that it's almost becomes a game where guys will see if they can beat the system because they're so heavy handed with us. Yeah, I can, Im I can yeah. imagine. You know, when, when it's tough like that, you know, the, the feeling of getting one up, getting one over, is, it's just a little bit sweeter, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially, you know, it just depends on the cops, the precinct, you know, the, the busier the precinct, the more the antics are going on. The slower the precinct, the, the cops tend to be more rule followers and afraid of their own shadow. It just it just depends on, on you know, on, yeah. on, on the precinct. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Right. I mean, that uh, we, you know, we're we're a little bit over the hour mark now, but I, I think it was worth listening to those stories because we don't really want to let you go, if we're honest. But I do need to give a little shout out to our sponsors, Ollie's. So. If you want your olives, your nuts, your pretzels, or your chocolate-covered pretzels, head along to ollies-ollies.com. And if you use the promo code TALLBOYRADIO, all one word, all capitals, and you have to be based in the UK when you do that, you'll get a 20% discount off your order. And with every order placed on their website, they donate a school meal to a child in need with the help of One Feeds Two. So it's a worthy cause as well as you're getting your snacks to go along with your beer. And speaking of beer, I've got to tell you, dude, this red jammy peanut butter marshmallow honeycomb imperial sour, and that is a mouthful to say, is an absolute gem. I'll just give a shout out to the bottle stop in Cheadle, which is where I picked these beers up when I was chatting to the guy there. I promised I'd give them a mention on the podcast. So with all that being said, Vic, thank you very much for joining us again. Honestly, it has been an absolute pleasure, and we would be honored if by the time you get that seventh book ready to go, you you come out and you pitch it and you tell our listeners all about it. Because one thing we'd like is, it's we hope that people listen to this and you know certainly they have been listening in droves to that first episode. But we hope to listen to this one as well. But not only listen, go out and pick up one of the books as well. And what we've done, so we do a little blog post about each of our episodes. So if you're listening to this, head to tallboyradio.com. And you can find the blog post on this episode. And there's a link there where you can click on it. It'll take you straight to Amazon.com and you can find Vic's books on Amazon. But because like I say, you say the $10 stocking duffers, 
here in the UK, we've got a slightly better exchange rate. So you can pick them up for just less than eight, so eight or nine pounds for the most case. So hopefully our listeners will do that. So Vic, did you want to say goodbyes to our listeners? Thank you so much, my friends across the pond. I, I enjoy coming on your show. You guys are great. Um, Merry Christmas if I don't talk to you before then. And, you know, I'd love to come back anytime you want me on. Oh, absolutely. We'll definitely have you back again when we get there. Oh, 100%. I, I loved last week. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this week. If I'm honest, Vic, I could probably listen to you talk most weeks. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, w- whenever that next book is is ready, you know, you're more than welcome to come join us here. Oh, can't wait till next time. You know, it's funny. Like, if we were in a bar somewhere having a couple of drinks, I probably would have you guys laughing your heads off. You, you know what I mean? Because, like, doing these interviews, I, I've got talking points and stuff, but I try to go to stories. But, like, if we were just talking in a pub yeah. and you would bring something up that I hadn't thought of in a while, I'm like, oh, and then, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. look, look, ne- ne- next time, next time, I'll say next time in the state, next time in Florida. I'm definitely going to hunt you down. I'm going to stalk you. Oh, I'm going to find yeah. it. We're going to go out for a beer and it's going oh, to be just an amazing night. It's going to be brilliant. <laughs> no, that'd absolutely. be cool. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But like I say, anytime you want to come back on, you just drop us a message. You're welcome back on anytime. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you. So that just leaves it then for me to wrap it up and say, hope everybody has enjoyed this episode. If you want to catch us and you don't necessarily want to just listen to Tallboy Radio, you can catch me and guys on the Happy Hour podcast. We are recording an episode with them next Saturday where we're going to be talking all things Lord of the Rings, what we know about that. God only knows, but we're going to talk about it nonetheless. So I wish you all a fun farewell and say thank you for listening and take care. Mm